Daily at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 159 of Dogcast Radio, which is an in-depth interview with Tony Shelbourne. Regular listeners will know that Tony is a Tellington Touch practitioner and an author who worked for many years as a senior handler and education officer at the UK Wolf Conservation Trust. Today she talks to us about her experiences with those beloved wolves. So without more ado, let's get to the interview. I'm talking to Tony Shelbourne. Hi Tony. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, I'm fine, thanks. You? Good, good, good. Good, good. And we're talking about your uh, latest book, Among the Wolves, Memoirs of a Wolf Handler. So. Yeah. Um, tell me, Tony, how how did you first get into um, the world of wolves? Because a lot of us want to sort of admire wolves, and there's always a lot of interest when we talk about wolves. But how did you do it? What drew you in? It was completely by accident. Hmm. So I was sat at home one day, um, and the phone rang, uh, and a lovely lady who was working um, as a volunteer up at the UK Wolf Conservation Trust um, asked me if I'd like to go and do some telling to touch on the wolf. Hmm. Now, I'm a telling touch practitioner, and she'd had a little play around with the T-touch with the walls and could see that it was really calming them down. And, and she kind of wondered what it'd be like if someone who knew what they were doing, in inverted commas, um, kind of <laughs> did some work with them. So she invited me up, and I went and met them, and I just absolutely fell in love with them. Hmm. And I found out you could become a volunteer, and that was it. I didn't leave, basically. That was like the next 10 years of my life. Yeah. So I ended up, you know, volunteering, working my way up through, you know, um, to being a handler, then a you know a senior handler. I then became a well, their education officer as well. So I actually became one of the members of staff in the end for about oh. the last four years I was there. So complete accident. Loads of people want to work with wolves. For me, I was so lucky. It just kind of fell in my lap. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it incredible that some sometimes when something's meant to be, it is. It just happens. And it, as you say, yeah. it's a, it's an almost accidental or it's incidental. Yeah. And you, but it still happens. It does. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So that first time when you went to do tea touch, the the wolves were were tame, and you actually could sort of touch them. Well, they're socialised. So I turned up having seen wolves in you know wolves in zoos who run away from you and pay yeah. and hide. Yeah. And these wolves all ran up to the fence, mm. uh, wagging their tail and a kind of inviting touch. And in those days, there were no safety barriers or anything like that. I mean, this yeah. years ago. Um, and I was just sort of just told you, hold my fist out, let them have a sniff. They turn sideways and give them a little tickle through the fence. And I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. You know, these dogs, you know, they're like dogs. Yes. They're coming out, they want to interact with you. And in the book, I actually described the very first meeting I had with the wolves, which again was just an incredible experience. I ended up working with a, a wolf called Dakota, who in my heart will always be my favourite, mm. just because she was the very first wolf I met, and she was a cheeky, mischievous little matter. She <laughs> <It> was just <laughs> lovely. Um, and I described the whole process of that first meeting and kind of how it went on. So, you know, it's, it's a really bizarre, almost, you know, experience. It's almost like an out-of-body experience. Yes. You can't imagine doing it. I remember coming away feeling... You know, remembering the feel of their coat and the smell of the coat, and yeah. you know how it looked when it was like when they looked you in the eye, and you know, because wolves just don't look you in the eye; it's almost like they look you in the soul. You know, yeah. they just absolutely yeah. figure you out within seconds, mm. and they will either love you forever or they'll go, "No, I don't, I don't like you very much." Mm. <laughs> yeah, wow. they're all very black and white with the wolf. Yeah, yeah, and you've you mentioned that Dakota sort of was a real character. Are they 
do they sort of resemble dogs in as much as I always find that dogs do have their own likes and dislikes and characteristics and some dogs you get on better with others you know yeah. is that same is that true with wolves absolutely they've all got their own characters they're all idiosyncrasies they're things they like things they don't like you know they are just one of a kind each and every one of them definitely they are just but the bigger the bold, you know, everything's kind of out there. With dogs, you know, sometimes you get mixed messages or everything's quite watered down. With a wolf, it's full on in your face, you know. You know if they like you. They, you know if they don't. Yeah. You know, they will, if they don't like you, if they decide they don't like you, they're never going to like you again. You know, you can't win them round. Yeah. They're very intelligent, you know, and they, they just, they're just incredible. It's really hard to describe the relationship you can have with them because... It's really quite intense and very, very fulfilling. Mm-hmm. You know, it really does give you a sense of, of purpose and a sense of, of just kind of you know, being with them. And I've been with them in some an amazing experience, like late at night, early in the morning, when they've been injured, you know, when they've been ill, when they're dying, you know, neonatal little puppies. And it's, every single experience is just unique. And it's one of the things that very few people in the world get to do. There is an exclusive little club of people who work with socialised walls. Yeah. And, there's, there's, and if you haven't done it, you just can't quite describe the, the, the immensity of it, I suppose, the kind of privilege that you feel yeah. when they let you into their world. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting that you say they sort of make their mind up about you almost instantly. Do you think that... That's something we've bred out of our dogs because they don't need, if you like, so many instincts, if you like, which is a clumsy way of putting it. But have we bred some instinct out? I think we've just bred them to be really puppy-like and very appeasing yeah. and very willing to, to, to please us, haven't we? So we yes. You know, with a, you know, a tiny puppy, like, just like a tiny wolf, they are going to be more likely to interact with lots of different people. And, and, and dogs keep that trait as they grow up. You know, we've bred that into them so mm. that they interact with us and they need us and we feel needed and all that. A wolf, it'll hit six, seven months of age and it'll go, oh, fine, thanks, I know what I'm doing. Mm. I'm all grown up. I can, I'm starting to hunt for myself. Don't need you anymore. Yeah. And it's a real switch with them. They kind of go from being sitting on your lap chewing an apple to, right, I'm going to go off and do myself. I'm independent. Mm. And they grow up incredibly quickly. Yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? Mm. Okay. Um so then I have to ask then, because you've made them sound so appealing. Tell me what it's like to, to sort of help raise wolf cubs. Uh, incredibly stressful, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you know mum is always going to do the job better than you are. And you spend the first few weeks, months panicking that you haven't fed them the right food. That, you know, if they decide not to suckle one day off a bottle, it's a major trauma. You know, there's all these things that can go wrong. Yeah. So to be honest, once they can start choosing their own food, then you start to relax a little bit. But it's exhausting, just like it is with human babies. You're up all through the night feeding them. You know, I remember 4 a.m. feeds and 12 o'clock feeds and, you know, just being absolutely exhausted. Yeah. But the, but the flip side of that is that you sit down in a artificially made den with wolf cubs and within seconds they've all piled themselves on top of you. <laughs> They want to have that close contact. You know, they need it. They get distressed if they haven't got contact with either another wolf cub or yourself. Mm. And then quite often, they, you know, they'll lie upside down in your arms and I remember them patting my hair and my face with their paws and, Aww. you know, doing just adorable stuff like that. Yeah. So very similar. They're very similar to, 
to puppies, to domestic puppies from naught to kind of six weeks. Yeah. And then they just accelerate away. So whereas you wouldn't exercise tiny puppies very mm. much because of joint problems and all that, wolves seem to crave and need quite a lot of exercise. So we were taking them out for quite a long time, mm. you know, relative to their size. And by the week, sort of 10, week 10 out in the wild, they're traveling around with their packs anyway. Yeah. And they kind of get dropped off on rendezvous sites while the pack go of hunting and they'll kind of bring food back or then they take the puppies to the carcass. Mm-hmm. So they need to be mobile and they need to be independent pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So they really do speed away from domestic puppies very quickly. But yeah, that first first few weeks before they're completely weaned, I, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's exciting. <laughs> Yes, but I very bet. exhausting and a little bit worrying. Yes, well, it's a huge responsibility, isn't oh, it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if if a wolf has been raised in in that circumstance, you know, with with the, a human as their main carer, if you like, is there a is there a long lasting difference? Are are they different long term from a wolf that's sort of been raised by another wolf, or? or that well, not... what happens with wolves is that if you don't start to hand-rear them before their eyes are open, mm. then they'll never fully lose their mistrust of you as a human. So they'll always be slightly frightened of you, yeah. always be slightly wary. So you, if you want to use them for ambassadorial work, you have to get them really, really early. Yeah. Um, and, and, and lucky enough, the cubs that I raised have actually been rejected by their mum. Yeah. For, uh, you know, a few days of age. So they'd had the, the essential classroom they needed for mum, like special milk to kickstart everything. Um, and then she abandoned them. Um, where they were, couldn't keep them. So we were able to take them on and hand rear them, which is the perfect scenario for me. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, because I really am not keen on taking cubs away from viable mums and no, all that stuff just no. so we can touch them. But, you know, some other people I know who've raised some cubs from six weeks of age and they spent so much time socialising, sleeping with them every night, doing lots of work with them, and they never quite lost that that anxiety around the general public, as it were. They're mm. kind of okay with the people who are really closest to them. Yeah. yeah they can kind of handle them, they can go in with them, they can hand feed them, all that stuff but they're still a little suspicious. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, some of the wolves I raise, you know, you could put them on a lead, the vet could come in, take stitches on them, give them injections, do whatever, and mm-hmm. they just stood there and didn't bat an eyelid. But you yeah. couldn't do that with a part socialised wolf. So no. one that's, you know, not been socialised before their eyes are open. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. Gosh, it's But so the it advantages does. are great because you can do all these things with them and it's less stressful, like vet examinations, like taking them for a walk, like changing enclosures. The simple things that most wolf keepers go, oh, no, you know, so I'm going to have to sedate my wolves yeah. and have to move them. It's a major operation. Whereas, so far, you just put them on a lead and walk them somewhere else. It's, it's easy. It's yeah. really easy. I remember some wolf keepers coming up and spending a day with me once and I said, well, how do you move them from that enclosure to that, like, holding pen, which is a little enclosure within the enclosure, hmm. so we can put the walls away if we want to cut the grass or stuff like that. And I said, look, I'll show you. And I went, open the door, called them, and they walked through. And oh. they were so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. So, I mean, I could, you've got me thinking now, but has there any, are there any walls sort of in captivity where the... the um, the mother wolf has actually sort of not rejected them, but would would the mother in that situation allow enough human contact for the cubs to become um, socialised to humans, or has, has that not happened to your 
In, as far as I know, in the UK, it hasn't been done. If it has, I don't know about you, so I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, I know of, yeah. of wolf cubs that have been hand-read and then put back with socialised parents. Mm. Um, and I, it's an interesting concept because I, I wonder whether if you had a really strong bond with the mum, yes. whether you could actually do that. And that would yeah. obviously be the perfect scenario. Well, yeah, yeah. But it's a case of people are uh, possibly unwilling to try because... If they need ambassadorial rules, yes. then they can't risk it. Because it's actually really quite hard to get cubs in captivity now, which yeah. is great. Yes. Because it yeah. means there isn't surplus cubs that are, you know, being born and they're in, you know, can't disperse from their, their parental pack, you know, at the right age. It causes stress within the pack. And you can't really mix adult wolves with adult wolves unless possibly you're, you're kind of creating a new breeding pair. Yeah. You know, they just don't get on. You can't just take some water one day and some for another and mix them in. It's just not going to happen. Mm. Um, so it would be a really, really interesting thing to do, and I'd love to try. Yeah. And yeah. see if it would happen. But, you know, you'd have to have a really strong bond with the mum and obviously do it at your own risk because she might not want you to be anywhere near her. Well, that, yes. I mean, there's two things there, isn't there? That was what I was thinking. If, if the cubs saw their mother interacting with you quite happily, that presumably would would you know uh, reassure them but as you say it's that thing of will she accept anybody there but uh, yeah well, yeah and obviously as well you'll still need to interact with them before your eyes are open so yeah. whether she'd let you you know in her den to allow you to do that <gasps> because i mean in the wild what happens if you go into a den site and, they, and scientists want to count cubs that are in a den they just go in all the walls run away they can crawl down into a den count and process the cubs crawl out again go off and then the the um, the adults come back again. Oh wow! Right. Okay. Yeah. So yes. So you're asking that would be a big ask of a mother wolf, then would it? It would be a big mm. ask. It would be a big ask for the relationship you had with her. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, but I'm sure it could be possible if you had that right relationship with with a wolf. Yeah. But you know, it's one of those things. Whether it ever happen, I don't know. No. No. If you hear of it, Tony, let me know because I'm, I'm really intrigued now. <laughs> but uh, but yes, it it does. It feels better in in the circumstances you're describing when yes. you're helping them, aren't you? They've been rejected yes. and absolutely, yeah, that's the best yeah. case scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then when they get a bit older and they sort of um, become more independent, what's it like, sort of handling them? You know, once they are an in adult, in their teenage years. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> 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 it's a bit like teenage dogs, you know, they, they go through the, the terrible teens, mm. um, but wolves are so much stronger than, than dogs, so you know, they can, testing you out sometimes could be a bit of a challenge. Yeah. So again, there's a couple of stories in the book where I describe, um, especially Torak, the, the male that I hand, helped hand rear, who just got to say, like, oh, I'll just have a little play with mum, you know, I'll just bounce up and just, you know, play with me a little bit, but it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> they don't mean to do any damage. You know, the, to them, they're just playing with me like they would play with each other. Mm. But, yeah, you have to teach some manners and you have to say, actually, I'm human and you can't do that with me anymore. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's a case of being firm but fair with them, really. And, and just from a very early age, teaching them your human skin is pretty fragile and you're not really allowed to do that. So, yes. you know, you can't grab me by the throat. You can't grab my arm and put pressure on it. Yeah. Pulling my ponytail isn't a good idea. <laughs> I've, had, I've had a few interesting hairstyles where all cubs have been hanging off ponytails and things. So. Yeah, but it's again, it's a case just like with your dogs. You teach them yes. the manners from an early age, but yeah. they are very, very powerful. Yeah. So you yeah. huge moments are when you go in with them as well. So if they're acting out like really playfully, 
um, very boisterous and hard playing with each other. You just wouldn't go in the enclosure. You'd wait until they were much calmer. Yeah, yeah. Now, you, you mentioned sort of teaching them and training them there. How similar methods, you know, to those you do use with your dog, um, can you use with a wolf or is it an entirely different approach? Um, I mean, you can clicker train wolves. I mean, I never yeah. have, but I have seen some wolves that are clicker trained. Hmm. Um, so they are very intelligent. Whether they want to continue doing that clicker training, because sometimes they'll go, well, I've done it once. You know, why am I doing it again? You know, what's yeah. the reason for me to do this? Um, but it's a case of almost using their own body language, their own methods, really. So you know, we, we used to use a guttural word that meant no to them mm. um, and a hard stare. You know, and just your body posture and, you know, how you acted around them would be, I guess, to them interpreted as how each other would do it to them. That's not me getting on all fours and, you know, no. all that stuff. But it is mm. the case of, uh, I don't think that's appropriate. Yeah. So it's just about being firm with them, really, at that kind of boisterous stage. Um, but what we often would do is, you know, you know that's not acceptable. So we may... If they're jumping up, just ask them to go onto the ground by almost stepping sideways and letting them kind of fall off you. Yeah. But then going very quickly to a reassuring position and giving them a belly rub, which will calm them down. Yeah. So it's a case of kind of, you know, you can't beat a wolf because they are too strong. You know, if they, yeah. if they want to jump up at you, they'll jump up at you. Uh, it's a case of this, just like with kids, distract them. <laughs> Give them something else to do. And you know what? Other wolves are very good at helping you out in those situations. Aww. So Dakota and Juma used to be the worst. Yeah. Dakota would jump up at you and Juma would come along and tell her sister off. to <laughs> <laughs> kind of save you. Or you'd kind of just accidentally nudge Dakota onto Juma and Juma would go, oi! Yes. And distracted and you're out of the picture then, really. So <laughs> distraction and, and firmness is probably your, your, your biggest tools, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, while you were saying that, I was thinking sort of we, we've obviously we, we've lived alongside dogs for a long, long time. And so we've given dogs as a species time to, to learn to read us, haven't we? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you, but I, I guess that you've got the same issues of wolves are sort of very visual, I would imagine, as well. And, and it's, Oh, they read you so well. Yeah. My yeah. tiny little things, even a breath change will, will, will pick up what's going on. Um, Lunka, who I used to look after... If I needed to get her onto the hard standing because the vet was coming to look at her or whatever was happening, I had to go down hours beforehand and be very, very conscious of not having anything in my head to do with the vet, not change my breath rate, just go everything completely normal because otherwise she'd go, hmm, what's happening today? Something's going on and she'd work it out completely. Wow. So, yeah, you, ha- you have to be really kind of spot on with your intent that you have in your head of what you're going to do with them because they pick it up really, really easily. Yeah, yeah. So is that, is that something that you have to be aware of when you, if, you know, if, when you let them interact with the public, that if, if the public are nervous, is that anything that bothers them then? Um, you can definitely pick up if the wolf has a negative or a positive a reaction to somebody. Hmm. So there would have been times when you, as they approach, because often you would get them to approach from the front, hold a hand out and assist so that the wolf could sniff them first of all. And sometimes even, you know, two, three metres out, you could go, oh, actually, can you go to the other wolf? Mm. Because this wolf is showing signs that it's not going to accept you coming to them. And the other thing you need to be aware of as a handler is if you had an injury or you're ill and you go in the enclosure, you'll pick up on that as well. Mm. Uh, but the, on the flip side of that is they were always very, very gentle and attentive to women who were pregnant. Oh, isn't that lovely? Yeah, because in wolves, you know, 
litters, young, are, you know, the next generation, they are there to be looked after, protected, played with, fed, all, all of that stuff. So it's kind of the same with mum. It's like, you are the future of our pet. We need to look out for you. And they were just adorable around them. And often you kind of sidle up to someone and say, are you pregnant? Like really quietly. And they go, yeah. And they go, oh, yeah, I could, could tell by the how the walls were kind of interacting with you. Wow. Yeah, so sweet. That's so touchy. I'm filling up here. Yeah. That's beautiful, isn't it? Oh, that's lovely. Because, I mean, on a, on a sort of on an aside, I know that um, many German shepherds sort of are very careful around children, aren't they? And, and my mum had a German shepherd who, um, who was very careful with children. And two things he did... Um, a, a young, he, he, I have to hold my hands up, and, and I didn't know as much about dogs then, and he wasn't, he hadn't sort of been as carefully socialised around children as I would want now with any dog. Um, but a, a young, she was about three, a child came over that we knew, and she picked a stick up, and we all tense and went, oh, he's going to go into, you know, I want the stick, play with me. Nice play, but boisterous. And he just sat down, because he was sort of like, Okay, you're, you're a child. I'm not going to do this. Mm. And uh, and then when we had when I had Jenny as a baby, um, the German Shepherd hadn't been up the stairs for for months, and he dragged himself up when we took her up to change a nappy to say, "What are you doing? I'm keeping an eye." You know, oh. and it's, yeah. And again, I thought, "Oh gosh," you know. But it, it's it's it, that instinct obviously comes from from the wolves. It's yeah, um, yeah that's and lovely. When we had cubs on site, the other adult wolves was really interested. And every time you took the cubs up to the fence for them to sniff through the fence. They would be very gentle, and they would roll over, almost like to like like present their bellies and stuff like that. It was really sweet. Oh, that's lovely. That's it's, it's so nice because as you say, it's their their future. They want them to go on. That's lovely. They're so family orientated wolves. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. If you have ever been frustrated by the choices the heroine makes in the stories you read, then Mace's Choice is for you. With Mace's Choice, at the end of each chapter you are offered a choice. There are always two options, and you choose what happens next. With over a million and a half words, that's over 5,000 pages, 256 chapters, and 128 different endings... Macy's Choice is an exciting innovation allowing you, the reader, to enjoy multiple happy endings. Why read just one story when you can read them all? Macy's Choice is a novel you can reread again and again, making new choices each time to vary your experience to find love with each of the three heroes. And it may be the only book you need this summer. To find out more, visit macyschoice.com. That's M-A-C-I-E-S-C-H-O-I-C-E dot com or search for Macy's Choice on Amazon. A guide dog called Nesbit earned over one million Delta airline miles in his lifetime and had his own frequent flyer card. Now, obviously, living with them and caring for them for for so long, Tony, you've you've had to nurse some wolves, haven't you? Because they've had like, conditions or injuries. Yeah, many a time I've nursed several wolves on the kind of the end of their days, but also a wolf who um, had a freak accident and broke his neck. That <gasps> Alba. Yeah. Um, and he was amazing. So he was pretty much paralysed down one side of his body. 
Yeah. We think he ran into a tree stake and collided with it with his head when his sisters were chasing him one evening. He found collapsed in the, in the enclosure when they went up to feed. Um, and the vet wanted to put him down straight away, but we were like, no, we're going to tie with him and we're going to get advice and stuff. And we actually, you know, were told, well, he's either going to get up in eight weeks' time or he'll never stand again. Mm. He was up and walking in four. Wow. Yeah. But, I mean, he at the beginning had 24-hour care. You know, we did lots of things. He's, he's the only wolf that I know of for health reasons to swam in a hydrotherapy pool. Mm. And I've swam with him in it. Um, the only other wolf was another wolf of ours that we took down Torak as well. He had a couple of swims when he was, he was a teenager growing up. Yeah. Um, he, Albert, let me do physio with him, let me do Tellington to touch on him. He had homeopathy. We used to feed him, you know, drip feeding water out of a sports bottle. You know, he was amazing mm. in what he did with us. And he's a really, he was a really dominant wolf, you know, as in he was, he was Mr. I won't like you if I don't want to. I'm pretty tough. You know, there's lots of people he didn't let handle him. Yeah. Yeah, when he was ill, he let many people come in and, and care for him. But, you know, I was one of those those kind of primary carers for him. I was one of those decision makers for, for what we did with him. Yeah. Um, and with my telling such background, and because it was all my friends that I pulled in to do extra work, like the physio with him, um, you know, I did probably most of the main care for him when he was he was first injured. And, and it's an incredible story. And there's a whole chapter in the book about it. And I, I sent it to a friend of mine to, to look through and, and, and comment on. Hmm. And I said, oh, watch out for the last page. It's a bit of a weepy. <laughs> she sent it back and went, I was crying long before the, the oh. last page. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a, and it was a very moving um, chapter to write as well. I found myself in tears many a time, just going back over all those emotions and all those dramas we had with him. Yeah. So, yeah, it took a lot for me to write it. It took a lot yeah. out of me. But I'm glad I got it down on paper because it's, one of those incredible things that is never going to happen to you again in your whole lifetime. No, no. Gosh, that's amazing. And he, and he made a, a full recovery? He was always slightly disabled. He was walked with a little bit of a wobble and a little bit of a limp, but yeah. he actually went on for another four years. Wow, that's yeah. amazing, gosh. And he yeah. was in with his sisters and he could put them in their place and function <laughs> as a wolf, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he decided he didn't like those people that he didn't like previously. He was looking after when he was ill. So he was getting better. It was like, oh, Albert's biting people again. That's always good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, bless him. Yeah. Gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, you mentioned it sort of in the... Um, press release about for the book that it's you know you've had great times with them and uh, not so happy times with them um so it must be so difficult when you when you lose a wolf when one dies it must be awful yeah it's tough especially if you've had to be the one who's called the decision and has you know gone in with the vet to kind of give that final injection basically because unfortunately uh, apart from one of the wolves there they all needed help at the end mm. Um, and interestingly, a lot of them, most of them went through cancer. Because I think in the wild, you know, they would die long before any cancer would be show up. And I think also with them being bred from a very long line of captive wolves, I think they just got that tendency to have yeah. um, that kind of uh, gene in them or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's always incredibly sad, but also incredibly touching that they allow you into their lives so much that you can, one, nurse them, but two, be there to kind of help them move on, really. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there was there's been some incredible sad times, but you know none of it's ever been not you know horrible. No, so no. it's not been traumatic experiences because we always did it when the water's still in their enclosures. We would sedate them first. Yeah. So they would basically just go to sleep and then we'd come in and kind of give them the final injection. So, you know, in the case of Alba, he d- it just happened to be on a day that we were all the main European wolf handlers were there. We were taking them out for an enrichment walk. Hmm. So he went with basically pretty much every single person who was close to him, around him. So that was just beautiful. Yeah. But yeah. very, very moving, very moving. Mm-hmm. And then for the staff who were that day running the event was even tougher because they then had to pick and go and run an event just minutes yeah. after it happened, really. So, yeah. yeah, the bonds you get with them are incredible. And it, for me, it was lovely giving them everything they needed from the minute I they came into my care all the way through, you know, to that end of life, sort of helping them on. But, yeah, tough, yeah. tough times sometimes. But, you know, incredible help from the vets that we used. We also used Nick Thompson, the homeopathic vet. We did so we used a lot of homeopathy with the wolves as well as used things at yeah. our local practice. So mm-hmm. um, some, you know, met some incredible experts along the way as well who'd give their time and their their yeah. knowledge to help yeah. them. Yeah, I bet the vets were sort of fighting each other to come out and see to wolves, weren't they? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was one wolf that I was I was holding Juma one day, and she she had an open pyometra. It was hmm. towards the end of her life, and you know, she had to have three massive big injections with big needles like a few days apart. We got the first one in her. We just about got the second one in here. Her the vet came to do the third one and she was having none of it. Oh. And I happened to be holding her at the time and luckily I know how to, you know, contain them without them. If they do start to kick off, they're not gonna get me as well. Yeah. But you know, there was a, a point where she managed to get her teeth around and just grazed the side of my my arm because she was so frantic to get away from this vet and then basically when she saw him back off she just leant into me as if to say oh please protect me and we were kind of just chatting a little bit afterwards and we were discussing the fact that we couldn't get this glass on in and we just had to see how she went and the vet went let's see if she likes me again and started to approach with his fist out and I was like (laughs) (laughs) humour was like (laughs) yes Oh gosh! Not a good idea. No, no. So yeah, that took all my strength. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wee little thing. I'm like under five foot. So and to hold a wolf in that same circumstances, your adrenaline kicks in. Yes, yeah. And I, I guess you know all the techniques as well. <laughs> yeah, luckily. Oh yeah, yeah. I know people have different opinions on the sort of education side of um, having captive wolves and sort of taking them out and about and things like that. Would you say the wolves in your care had a good quality of life and a happy life, though? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because they got to do things that were not mundane, everyday stuff. They got so much mental stimulation. It was great because we would do stuff that they would really like. So, for example, I would do events with children, like pumpkin days at Halloween. So we would carve out pumpkins, stuff them full of the wolves' favourite treats, and feed them to the wolves. Well, they thought that was the best thing ever. Yeah. You know, we could take them for walks. We could take them into different areas. You know, what, and what we did with them was because we did it from a very early age, so we're very comfortable with it. And any mm. wolf that wasn't comfortable in those situations, we would, just wouldn't put them into that situation. So, you know, the incredible wolves that Roger Palmer um, raised, who was the founder of the UK Wolf Conservation Trust, 
Um, you know, I remember Jim and Dakota going into halls, walking upstairs, standing in front of audiences of hundreds of people, being stroked by lots of people, being on TV sets, you know, and they all just took it in their stride completely. Yeah. And yeah. I wouldn't have been comfortable if they weren't comfortable. Um, and, you know, on occasion they might get a little bit freaked out or something. I remember uh, Mai one day, she was just coming out of an arena and the loudspeaker screeched above her head and she just dropped to the ground. She was still quite young at the time. Hmm. And she was like, oh, I'm really, really scared. And I had to carry her back oh, to the portable enclosure that we'd put up that day. She was quite heavy. Um, but, you know, those, those are little instances that happen. And most of the time the walls were incredibly happy. And shows to them meant ice creams and hot dogs, basically, because... Yeah, people would go, the, the burger van would go, oh, we've got some burgers, can't sell, so the walls want them, and the walls would be like, yeah, thanks very much, that's very nice. <laughs> so, and if you ever seen a you know, wolf demolish an ice cream, they do love it. I mean, I know it's probably not the, the dumb thing to do, but the one, you know, a couple of years is not yes. going to kill them, is it? No, no. <laughs> and they did enjoy it. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they wouldn't do it. We could, if they didn't want to do it and they didn't like it, we'd never catch them again. But yeah. most often not, you would just open the gate, call their name, and they'd run onto the yard to have their collars on. So, yeah. you know, that's a good indication to me that they're happy to do what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. And and it, as you say, it must make life more interesting for them. It's, uh, yeah, Yeah, definitely. because they get to go and do lots of stuff. They're not stuck in a tiny enclosure, you know, being stressed because people are staring at them and yeah. not being able to get away from them. And because they were socialised, we could give them massive enclosures, like two and a half acres or so. Yeah. So they can get up to full speed in there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, they can live pretty natural life. They can hunt out there and the kind of land in the enclosure or wanders in. Um, you know, they can do all those natural behaviours plus then they can have the interaction with people and go out and do other stuff as well. So, yeah, yeah they had a pretty good life. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I, sounds like it, yeah. So, I mean, you, you've talked about sort of enrichment walks with them and, and, and obviously they've got the encounters with the, the public. Um, did Was there any other sort of enrichment like with food or anything? What, what sort of, uh, what's a day or a week life like for a wolf in, in, a, in the trust? Well, we used to, the truffles used to be fed every day. Um, mm. So, and they would competition feed. So if one got more one day, they'd be less hungry the next day so the next wolf would get you know, more yes. the next day, as it were. So yeah. it kind of evened out in the week. Um, and then we would do loads of events with kids, um, you, know, surround, you know, around food. We'd make them ice lollies in the summer made of hot dogs and this, that, oh, and the other. Yes. Um, Christmas crackers at, at Christmas. Or people would make, you know, um, deer-shaped um, things out of, like, wicker work and stuff them full of food, and we'd put those in enclosures for wolves to destroy. Mm. We'd hide food in the enclosure for them as well sometimes. So, yeah, I mean, food and wolves is always going to go well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but we would also then do novel scents. So they say, co- say perfume or coffee sprayed on a hessian field, a hessian fat filled with straw, mm. and they'd spend hours rolling in it. They'd love it. Wow. So yes, anything to do with food or novel scents, um, then they'd really, really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd, I'd forgotten that sort of scent is there would be their main um, sense. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Which again is why having them out on walks was brilliant because the scenting they could do was amazing, and you constantly see them scenting the ground, scenting the air, scenting you. You know, they'd know everything that was going on around them. Mm-hmm. Oh, lovely. So obviously, as you say, it was it was at times a, an emotional process writing the book, um, mm. but it must have brought back so many happy memories. Well, yeah, and that's really why I did it, because I had started to forget some of the little things, like 
them howling as you left in the morning after letting them out. You'd drive up the driveway and they'd howl for you to come back. Aww. You know, just silly little things like that that are just amazing. I just kind of wanted to put it down so I could remember it. Yes. Um, and then, you know, a friend of mine persuaded me that maybe other people might want to read that as well. Cause I yeah. Gonna, I wasn't interested in writing my memoirs. It seemed a bit ridiculous at my age. Um, and I'm not that kind of showy person who would go, look at me, what I've done. Um, so I, I kind of went for it in the start and thought, actually, if I just do it for myself, and then if somebody else wants to publish it and other people want to read it, then then great. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah. now there in, in black and white. It's in writing. So, you know, at the end of the day, I can go, oh, yeah, I remember I did that. Yeah. So that's the process that I went through, really. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I mean, I imagine that most dog owners will be interested because there, there is that fascination with sort of that ancestor of our dogs. It, it, there is that interest and sort of you, you look to them and sort of where's this behaviour come from, don't you? It's, uh, you, do, yeah. you do, And you can recognise a lot of it. You know, yeah. it's, it's very much clearer in walls. It's big in your face. But, you know, people would come and say, oh, I recognise my dog does that at home. Yeah. And then you can start to go, oh, well, that, they're doing it because, you know, in a wolf's head, they're... they're turning around in a circle to make a bed because in the wild that's what wolves would do to flatten the ground down or they'd scrape uh, you know a shallow hole in the ground to, to lie down to keep cool or keep out of the wind yeah and wolves still you know dogs still do that with their bedding because it's just in their genes really yeah yeah do you know our, even our little bichon that's that the one of our dogs that does that turning round and round. Yeah. I think some small dogs are are more wolf at heart than the bigger dogs. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Um would you ever see yourself sort of going back to working with wolves or is that sort of that's finished for you but it's it's happy memories? Well, I, it's not a case of me never stopping, really, because um, I often get a phone call now from friends in the wolf world in the UK saying, oh, our pack's doing this, or, you know, what do you think? What's your opinion? Mm. Um, I'm starting to go and do some wolf experience days, so taking groups up to Wolf Watch UK. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing that sort of three or four times a year. So, so I've never really stopped being with wolves, and I, I get to go in with other socialised packs as well around the country. Yeah. Um, because I think the wolf world's so small that we all know each other really well. Yes. Um, and we all kind of rely on each other when things get a bit tough. Um, yeah. And the, and the upside of that is that you you, know, you can go visiting someone and they'll take you in their walls. So yeah. um, I, I'd never say never, but I'd, I probably would say it's never really stopped, to be honest. Yes. I mean, it's not yeah. every day anymore. No. Um, but I do get the privilege of still yeah. being interacting with, you know, some of the some of the packs in the UK. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, just phenomenal for me. Yeah. It kind of keeps me sane. Oh, I was going to say that's, that's lovely for you. I think it's probably also very lovely for the wolves because they get the benefit of your experience and, you know, so that's, that's going to be a help to them. So that's great. Um, now, I know people are going to be very interested. And if you're not in the UK, uh, I'm sorry, but maybe you want to travel to the UK just for wolves. Um, but where can people find out more about you and sort of how to get in touch with you if they want to learn more about wolves? Oh, so there's loads of ways. So um, you can either connect with me via my website, which is, kellingtontouch.co.uk mm-hmm. um, but most people to be honest nowadays will contact me through my Facebook page and it's the title of my first book which is The Truth About Walls and Dogs so just Google just go into search the search bit in Facebook put in The Truth About Walls and Dogs yeah. and that's my work page really so anything that's coming up any events I'm at kind of will get advertised on there so it's probably the easiest way 
I am on Twitter, but to be honest, who can say anything in 140 characters? <laughs> so I'm on there sometimes, but not as much as on Facebook. And that's just at Tony Shelbourne. And uh, where can people find out more about the book, Tony? Okay, so both my books are available from directly from the publishers, which is hubbleandhattie.com, um, or they're available on all good online bookstores as well. So just go and Google my name or the name of the book and you should be able to find them. Smashing. Okay, we'll put all those um, links on in the uh, the show notes. Um, thank you ever so much. It's been fascinating, and um, it's you're right. I mean, it is a privilege, and and you you've been so lucky. But thank you for sharing it with us. Oh, you're welcome. I hope you found that as interesting as I did, and all the links Tony mentioned are on the Dogcast Radio site. The nickname, Man's Best Friend, is believed to have come from a courtroom speech in Missouri, America, in 1870, where a farmer was suing his neighbour who shot his dog. I'm always interested in a news story if it involves dogs, and a few unusual ones caught my eye recently, in which dogs have swallowed the most unlikely of objects. First up, Hugo, a ten-month-old boxer dog from Devon, England, who became poorly, vomiting when he was about to set off for a walk. His worried owner took him to the vet's surgery, where amazed vets removed a riding crop. Luckily, Hugo had swallowed it handle-first, and it hadn't penetrated any major organs, and amazingly, two days after its removal, Hugo was back at home with his family, none the worse for his adventure. Now, Hugo may have recovered, but I'll bet his owner's purse is still a good deal lighter. But Tux, a French bulldog in Miami, USA, ate something a whole lot more expensive. When Jessica Farrer heard Tux chewing on something metallic, she figured he was mouthing her other dog's collar. So imagine her horror when she discovered that her engagement ring, which was slightly loose, was not on her finger. Putting two and two together, she took Tux to their veterinarian, where an X-ray showed that the ring was indeed in Tux's stomach. Incredibly, with the aid of an endoscope, the vet removed the ring via Tux's mouth, fearing that it was too dangerous to let the jewellery pass through the dog's intestine. And in Newcastle, in the north of England, Murphy, a German shepherd, became poorly after eating a bone. But when he ended up at the vet's surgery, an X-ray revealed that the bone was not the cause of poor Murphy's problem, but rather six golf balls that were nestling in his stomach. Owner David Larson is perplexed, as he had had Murphy for 18 months, and in that time the dog hadn't come into contact with any golf balls, let alone had the chance to swallow any. Murphy is now recovered from emergency surgery to remove the golf balls. But Labrador Tiki in Pennsylvania, USA, takes the prize for the most odd collection of objects swallowed. When Tiki lost her appetite and developed an upset stomach, but did not respond to medicine, her vet embarked on exploratory surgery, during which he removed 62 hairbands, 8 pairs of underwear and a bandage from her stomach. There's no accounting for taste, and thankfully, all four dogs are now back to normal. But if your dog's eaten something surprising, do let us know. And now it's time to announce the winner of our competition. We gave you the chance via our social media pages to win a copy of Woof, the only board game in the world that allows your dog to join in. We chose a winner at random from all the entries, and that winner is Lizzie Owen. Congratulations, Lizzie. And so, until next time... Look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com.
radio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident dogcast radio. That's all one word, dogcast radio. By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. It was the end of the day when a policeman was parking his police van in front of the station. As he gathered his equipment, his canine partner, Spike, was barking, and he saw a little boy staring at him. Is that a dog you've got back there? the boy asked. It sure is, the policeman replied. Puzzled, the boy looked at the officer and then towards the back of the van. Finally, the boy asked, So, what did he do?